0: This is Judaism Unbound, episode 26, six months in. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we're here today in a special episode, episode 26. We weren't initially planning to do this as a Lex and Dan episode, but we decided that we had a lot more to think about looking back at our entire show so far. This is our 26th episode, which basically means we've been around for half a year, which is pretty incredible, Lex. Yeah, it's hard to believe. When we started the podcast, I thought about it as more kind of an analytical service, that we were going to look at the landscape of what's out there and help others see what's going on and put together the pieces and see patterns. I didn't really think about it as a Jewish experience in its own right. I think that was my failure of creativity to to notice that, and it actually puts me in the mind of a meeting that I had at my synagogue years ago where I was on some committee and the uh, synagogue staff member who was leading the meeting went around the table asking everybody to talk about when they had their most spiritual. Spiritual experience in Judaism or in the synagogue, and when it got to me, I said, and I meant this seriously that I have my most spiritual experience when i 'm in a meeting like this because then I feel like i 'm really bringing my talents to the table where i 'm actually doing something that i 'm good at and i 'm um, excited that other people are thinking about stuff and i 'm actually having the kind of experience that i 'm looking for in those meetings, which everybody else tends to see <laughs> as like this instrumental activity that's meant to forward the other things. But for me, it was the spiritual experience itself. And one thing that I realized about that, or that I'm realizing about that now, is that in sort of unintentionally, we've created that experience for others who are out there in internet land that may also be getting a spiritual experience from thinking about Judaism. And we're so excited to hear that. And I think it's really making me start to think about like, well, what would we do differently, if anything, having now recognized that? Uh, Anyway, I think it's something interesting to think about, but where I wanted to go Uh, starting next was really just to go back to my realization about where I derive my spiritual experience, you know, which is like from coming to meetings. And essentially what we're doing here is some version of a national meeting and realizing that one of the things that I, I think we both noticed as we talked to some of the innovators that we've talked to over the last few months, that they are essentially solving their own problems, right? That was how they got into the business, so to speak. I'm thinking about Sarah Lefton. A couple of weeks ago, having talked quite a few times, using the word mortified or embarrassed at uh, the amount of Jewish stuff that she didn't know, and so she solved that problem by creating an organization that helps people know more. I, I think about David Siegelman talking about the fact that people of his age, in their you know post-college pre-family age, they didn't really have places to have Jewish experiences. So. He created them. Beth Finger talking about folks on Long Island who are looking for things to do with their families. And and she was one of them and she created it. And that seems to be this recurring theme that people are just creating what they need. And as we think about the question of how to promote more innovation, I think that's a really significant discovery that we're seeing, that what you have to kind of, what we have to do is figure out who are the people that are suffering because they have a need that's not being met, and rather than trying to meet that need, let's try to empower those people to meet that need, because that seems to be the thing that's really working.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with that, and it's funny because we're going to be talking with some folks um, that aren't just working in the Jewish community, but are writing about it. And in even some of them, we're, we're going to be talking with the authors of a recent book called Jew Asian. Um, and, the, and the authors themselves are a couple, one of whom is Jewish, one of whom is Asian, and they're writing about Jewish Asian couples. So this is a theme that we're seeing not just in the world of Jewish engagement, Jewish education, programming, etc., innovation, but also in the scholarly world. So I, I thought I'd bookmark that. The other thing I want to mention is that this comes back to the question that we first addressed in one of our very, very first episodes. I think it was our first episode about how the two of us are from different generations. You're Generation X. I'm a millennial. And while we can't claim to speak on behalf of our respective generations, that would be incredibly um, arrogant of us. We can claim to be one member of, of those constituencies And when I look at the Jewish landscape and I think of the extent to which there is so much effort going into working with both of our populations, although especially mine, especially 20s and early 30s millennial types of folks, I'm struck that very little of that is being done by people who are themselves in the cohort of millennials, and that's not to say that nobody can be successful if you're not a millennial in terms of reaching learners. There's a magic to intergenerational discussions and learning and and programming, but it's just a hurdle from the get-go because all of us know this intuitively. If we're in a room full of people and we don't know that many folks, like we're going to gravitate and reach out and speak to. people around our age like that that, that's just how we tend to work I mean some of us are extroverted I'm pretty extroverted and I can when I want to and and when I need to connect with other kinds of folks and I get a lot out of that but my first reaction my first instinct is to is to connect with people my own age and so when, when people who are substantially older or substantially younger than a target population are the ones that are so often trying to work with that target population, um, I feel funny saying target population. It's like, a, like we're at a shooting range. But, um, but for lack of a better term, I, I think that that's just going to be more difficult.
0: Yeah, well, let's dig into this a little bit more. I, I don't remember if we actually ended up being able to keep this in the podcast because of some sound issues. But I remember back when we talked to Anita Diamond many months ago, one of the images that she gave, one of the metaphors, was this idea of an oyster and how an oyster creates a pearl and the idea the way that an oyster creates a pearl in the real world is that a grain of sand gets into the oyster's shell you know somehow and irritates the oyster and as a protective mechanism the oyster lays down this material uh, and in a way, you know, to smooth it out and to not make that grain of sand irritating anymore. And that material is layered and layered and eventually becomes a pearl, which we see as something precious. Um, and metaphorically, It seems that what we're seeing here is that people who are irritated by something in their experience of Jewish life are trying to solve that irritation. And I guess the question that I I think we need to explore is, and and, uh, the truth is that this brings us all the way back to our early couple of episodes, three and four, where we talked to B'nai Lapi and where we talked about Albert Hirschman's book, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, right? This question of how do you make it more likely that a person who is irritated by a grain of sand is going to lay down that pearl substance and create a pearl rather than... Run away, leave it. You know, I don't know how the oyster would leave the sand, but maybe that's where the um, metaphor kind of tends to break down. But we certainly know that many people who are not kosher anyway. (laughs) But many people who are irritated by Judaism vote by exit. Again, I, I bring it back to what we're doing on this podcast because while on the one hand, I think we do have a goal and a mission of somehow engaging people in Judaism that are not like us, in addition to people that are like us, I think that when we actually reflect on the success that this podcast is having, I think what we're seeing is something different than maybe we imagined in a certain way. I think what we have discovered is that there are a lot of people out there, some of whom are connected to Jewish institutions and some of whom are not, but who are hungry to be thinking about Judaism, right? Who are hungry for this conversation about Judaism as opposed to what various other kinds of traditional organizations provide, which is experiences of Judaism. But it turns out, right, that you and I are hungry for this discussion about Judaism, right? You've been meeting that hunger in large part through posting on Facebook and creating this kind of, you know, in the last few years, you know, this kind of Facebook back and forth with people. And, and I've been doing various things locally, but also, you know, for me, it was also, you know, I was thinking about it in terms of the synagogue that I'm a member of and saying, you know, I wish that somebody was, uh, instead of having Shabbat services, I wish that somebody was leading a discussion group. Um, And, and, why was I not doing that? Well, you know, I didn't really want to go on Saturday morning. So actually it turns out that the time shifting aspect is what worked for me, right? That, that I can do this when it's convenient for me. And somehow that that is, we found a technology that allows people to listen to it and to participate in it when it's
1: convenient for them. I, I want to carry forth the point you introduced about how we're, we're talking about Judaism. And I think that there's something there I think my generation certainly I would almost call us like a meta generation. And it's hard to explain it, but so much of conversation whether it's on social media via Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat or like we're sort of commenting about how we talk. Like that's why we're so sarcastic. That's why people often see millennials as like obnoxious and sarcastic. Like we're we're talking about how we talk, we're thinking about how we think. And I think part of that is that we've just sort of grown up with so much access to information that we don't see you know the sources of what we receive as just information we see them as like oh we should analyze the source too so like we're thinking about how how various sources are writing we're thinking about how people think how like these meta level conversations and so i think we we didn't intentionally create a forum for that about judaism but i think we did. And I think it's largely just because we are both part of that trend. And that's sort of what we're getting at when we say that people within a particular constituency are able to to work especially well with that constituency. It, like, It's not that I have articulated thoughts, like really smart ones or whatever, about people my age. It's just that I do things without thinking about it in a way such that people my own age are likely to connect to it in certain ways, and you do the same.
0: Maybe this is connected, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking about Hello Mazel. It's really working for me. Um, My summer Hello Mazel box just came as we're recording this, and I was really excited by some of the things that were in it. So let me give you one example. I was really excited that one of the things that was included was a bottle of margarita mix. <laughs> now, there was nothing explicitly Jewish about it. If you read the Hello Mazel, it comes with a little uh, guidebook that says, you know, why they chose the things. Um, and so what they write in here is that the Talmud tells us that when two people share a drink, it brings them closer. And, um, When I first saw the margarita mix in the box, I kind of felt like, well, what's Jewish about that? Not in a critical way. I was still excited to get margarita mix because it's not really something that I'd probably buy for myself. But I wasn't totally sure what was Jewish about it. And then the next thing that flashed into my head was, what's Jewish about wine? Right? There's nothing especially Jewish about wine. It's just that Judaism uses wine in a certain way. So why can't Judaism use margarita mix in a certain way? And I and I feel like um, that's not really the conversation that I want to have, exactly right now. The conversation that I'm interested in having is that I feel like what Hello Mazel did was it sent me a box of cool stuff with a little bit of explanation as to why they thought it was valuable, but fundamentally they are trusting me to make meaning of it, but. I think about an author of a book, for example, in the sense that I think an author of a novel writes a story and they probably have an idea of the purpose of the story, the the deeper meanings. But I think that they also really understand that people are gonna read it and they're gonna make their own meaning from it. And that's actually part of what a great novelist is trying to do, is is trusting the reader
1: to make meaning of this material. Yeah, that trust, I hadn't thought about it. I think that's key. I think trusting the people that you're trying to connect with, whether, and that's not just Jewish, that's in general, I, I think. I think trust really is a key ingredient. But I, I was thinking about something else that I think this embodies, and it connects both to Vanessa Oakes's book that we talked about way back when and to recent conversations we've had about how Jewish spaces like the definition of what a jewish space is is changing we talked about how for a long time in the 20th century our presumption was you sort of go to a jewish space to connect with a jewish community and do jewish things and now we're seeing this shift that we've talked about the shift to judaism in the home and judaism in private spaces people read out public spaces and that's important but what you said with the margarita mix is actually another component of that. It's not just that we've decided any space can be a Jewish space if we make it so. We've decided any object can be a Jewish object if we make it so. We've decided, okay, this is margarita mix. There's no historical connection. But if we decide that margarita is going to be part of our Jewish experience for the hour or the day or the year... Cool, then it will be. And I also think that Hello Mazel, we've talked about Hello Mazel so many times, and I apologize for those that think we're harping on it, but it's really cool. Uh, The other piece of it is that you don't know what you're going to get. I I think people assume that what folks want is familiarity and comfort, and to know what they're getting, they want to hear the same melodies, they want to experience the same stories. like, I I think we sell ourselves short when we assume that the way things are or have been is the way they're going to be and the way we're used to something is the best way for us. And I think for whatever reason, we've we've been pushed subconsciously to say, margarita mix, that's not Jewish. Uh, wine is Jewish because it is and it has been.
0: I agree with you that I think the Jewish community in the past has tended to undervalue the desire of people to be surprised. I do think that also people do want want comfort and repetition is also something that that many people value. So it's it's a combination, but I definitely think that this element of sure, surprise sure. is something that has just been been missing and and at least for some of us and, I, and I, the truth is that I think that I actually would like to be surprised pretty much all the time. I'm I'm one of the people, you know, it sounds like you are too. You know, I, I think that different, different right. people are, are different. But I want to come back to something that you said, again, back to this margarita mix point, is that, you know, that any object can be... A Jewish object. And uh, last, you know, the last hella mazel box, I talked about the green string that they had invented, you know, to tie around your wrist to um, make a new ritual for the remembering of people that are still in slavery at Passover, right? You know, that really moved me. But at the end of the day, that was just a green string, a green piece of string. It, it also had nothing to do do with Judaism right. before yeah. it did, right? And it's just it's just fascinating to, to think about how something becomes a Jewish object. And I think it's also so important to look back into history and to look at most objects that we consider Jewish objects today. Initially they were not, right? So for example, wine was not a Jewish object. You know, a candle or or burning oil was not a Jewish object. Uh, a palm frond was not a Jewish object. You know, these things were all imbued with Jewish meaning over time. Judaism has always contained a mix of objects that were sort of invented as Jewish objects and, and things that, that were not. It just seems like that's actually something that's been so missing from our Jewish experience over the last however many hundreds of years that that we don't seem to be imbuing Jewish meaning into the objects of our day. In fact, we often seem to be resisting giving Jewish meaning to the object of our day and almost taking it as a point of pride that uh, Judaism is to resist the culture that's around us. And sure, sometimes that's good, especially in the realm of values. If we see the culture around us having values that are problematic and Judaism has always had a prophetic tradition that uh, speaks truth to power. But we've talked a lot about the internet as being something that Judaism could embrace and say, "How can we make this a Jewish thing?" As opposed to the idea that on Shabbat we should put our cell phone in a bag and, and put our uh, our electronics to rest.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny. My fiance recently discovered Chopped, the the, t- the TV show, and it's kind of a silly show. If yes, but um, but the premise is brilliant. Because for those who aren't familiar, what it is is you get four ridiculous ingredients. They put like cherry soda and like mushrooms and like pig's feet. They, they, they put all sorts of random things in a box and the chefs are told, make something. Just whatever. It's not that please make us the best, you know, chicken breast. Like it's just do it. And I think that that's very similar to what Hello Mazel brings to the table. But um, in the interest, so you gave me some some great pushback before about balancing the need for surprise and um, and for familiarity. I, I would, I don't know if this is a pushback or agreement, but I would say I do think that people imbue objects with Jewishness or holiness or like, but what I would say is that it tends to be like in our own private lives or with our families we have objects in our house that aren't like jewish objects that aren't a kiddush cup or a candle or a talis but we have you know something from a family member or a photo or whatever that reminds us of a particular jewish thing and that feels sacred and holy and i think lots of people have those things and vanessa oaks talks about that in her book too how just a particular set of dishes that we use Um, For Passover, whether or not it's for kosher reasons, like even if we just use them because we use nice dishes on Passover, they might have a certain association. I I think even of the silly little plastic frogs that we put on my table at at Passover, like when I see a plastic frog somewhere over the course of the year, even if it's September, I like think of Passover. You know, I'm not thinking about the frog plague. I'm thinking about my family's observance of Passover. So I do think we have that process. It's just that we haven't done it in like, quote unquote, official Jewish spaces and Jewish communities. Like I think if you brought a plastic frog onto the bima, onto the stage at a typical congregation, a lot of people would be upset. There's not a sense that we just imbue everyday objects. There's a sense... That we take the stuff that sort of has its holiness inside. The wine possesses something special about wine that makes it good. And and you can't use something else. By the way, for those who don't know, you actually, for, for Shabbat, so we say the blessing over the wine, whatever, Kiddush is not the blessing over the wine. The Kiddush is typically called the blessing over the wine. But Kiddush can actually be said over any beverage. Like I, when, when I don't have wine at home or grape juice, um, me and my fiance will say kiddish and we'll just change the initial blessing from beray pri to the blessing over other stuff, which is shachol nehiyah That's not important, and then we'll say the kiddish part, which is actually about separating shabbat for the rest of the week. You you can take literally any drink and make it your shabbat drink, like a margarita mix. Yeah, margarita mix exactly. Um, you might want to mix it with the margarita. Like I don't know that you just want the mix, but uh, if that's if that's how you want to remix Judaism, then go for it.
0: You could look at a few people that put plastic frogs on their Passover table and say, "Ah, what I'm seeing is that a Jewish practice is to put plastic frogs on a Passover table." But I don't think that's actually what you're seeing. I think what you're seeing no, is a no. Jewish tradition of imbuing things with Jewish meaning that may not be thought of as having Jewish meaning by other people, right? What you're seeing is a sort of superpower that Judaism gives to people that we can imbue anything with Jewish meaning if if we want to, and if we feel empowered to. And what we're seeing in terms of the understanding of of Judaism by many Jews is that they do that, but they don't believe that what they're doing is is really, really Jewish. You know, they sort of think of themselves as bad Jews or whatever. This is our family tradition, as opposed to they're doing the most Jewish thing that you could imagine. They are taking something every day and they are making it sacred, so to speak. And I actually think maybe this brings us back to that meta point, because I think that What Judaism is about is these these meta ideas, sometimes more than the idea themselves, but but people are too concrete in their thinking. And so they imagine that Judaism is a set of concrete practices as opposed to this meta approach. So one thing that we just talked about was the superpower of giving a sacred spiritual, whatever you want to call it, purpose to an everyday object or an everyday practice. Uh, We've also talked previously in the show about, uh, you know, I've talked about it in terms of of the way that Bernie Sanders talks about his understanding of Judaism, you know, where he says my family was killed in the Holocaust and therefore I believe that politics is a serious business and I need to uh, use politics to for the benefit of of everybody. Right. And what I have thought about that statement is that when I hear that statement, I am hearing exactly what the Torah says over and over and over again, which is you were slaves in Egypt and therefore you should care for the widows and the orphans and, and the poor and the stranger. Right. And, and I'm not saying that what Bernie Sanders is saying is that, you know, is is when he talks about the Holocaust, he's really talking about being a slave in Egypt. I, I'm, I'm saying that that's not, that's not the Jewish thing. The move, the Jewish thing is to say something happened to us in our history. And therefore we need to be better than the people who made us suffer. Right. And we need to make sure that nobody else ever suffers. So, you know, for Bernie Sanders, it's the Holocaust, for the Torah, it's being slaves in Egypt. For my grandmother, it was the Spanish Inquisition. You know, there's all sorts. But the Jewish move is to say, we learn we have suffered a lot in our history and whichever recent suffering you think is important is the one that you're going to focus on but therefore we should not ever allow anybody else to suffer like that again and certainly not at our hands and um and and i just think that a lot of these fundamental jewish ideas are totally missed in an environment that says you know should we keep kosher? Should we not keep kosher? You know, should, we, should our services be three hours or two hours? You know, the, the kind of concrete debates over what is the most authentic form of Jewish practice as opposed to the most authentic Jewish thing is to imbue things with sacred meaning. And I use sacred loosely. I, I can mean it in a secular way for me and for, I think, a lot of others. But, but the idea that we look at an object or we look at history and we ask ourselves, how can we make this meaningful?
1: Yeah, I think that's a huge question. And so we've spent a little bit of time looking at sort of everyday Jews that might be doing various Jewish rituals in their homes and how they can imbue various objects with Jewish sanctity. And I'm curious, um, given the amazing guests that we've had recently, what have you gleaned, Dan, from this conversation that we've been threading through our various episodes about sort of Jewish leadership and what makes certain folks rise to the forefront of the Jewish institutional world.
0: At the end of the day, right, I'm I'm interested in what can we, Judaism Unbound, or what can the Jewish community do to make it such that the David Siegelmans, the Beth Fingers, the Noah Kushners, the Yoav Schlesingers, the Sarah Leftons of the world who are out there being irritated by a problem that they're struggling with, would go out and start working to solve that problem by creating a new organization. You know, what is it? Is it something about the character of these people that they're tenacious, that they're gritty? You know, is it something about the circumstances of these people that they're able to go out and do some of these things because they have some source of income that that they're able to use to sustain them? Is it that they are creative in a certain way? Is it that, you know, what is it that? is a line that connects the people that are doing the most exciting work in this area. And what can we do to inspire people who have those traits to say, hey, go out and do it, you know, or what can we do to uh, actively look for the people that have those traits or what can we do? Um... I remember when we talked to Anita Diamond, I said, so maybe the answer is that we have to go out there and try to find the most creative people we can find and irritate them um, because, <laughs> because if we irritate them, their natural instinct is to create a pearl. But if they somehow uh, aren't irritated, maybe because they're they've they've long since gone, you know, how can we kind of get back in their in their face to irritate them so that they'll act? I don't know, you know, but that's I feel like ultimately that's a really strong uh, a really important question because I, I think as much as we might want somebody to be able to connect with people that are unlike them. So you know I always think about like this, a rabbi who is a religious person and um, somebody who really is attracted to Judaism the way it is, which is probably why they went to a rabbinical school. How is that person going to connect with with me? right? Um, And yet the people who would connect with people like me probably aren't working in the Jewish community because they didn't like it so much. And so they went and they found something else to do and they became advertising executives or or scientists or professors or lawyers or doctors or whatever they became. So those people aren't out there doing the work that would actually connect this stuff with me. But every once in a while, you run into a, a Sarah Lefton or a David Siegelman who could easily have gone in that direction and, and Sarah initially did, but that through some happenstance, finds themselves doing it in the Jewish world and, and is changing the Jewish world. So how can we do that more intentionally, more more actively? And just thinking about the recent nomination of Hillary Clinton to be the Democratic candidate for president and thinking about the impact that I've seen from that on the women and girls in my life just in the few weeks that since it happened. And... I'm realizing in a powerful way that this issue of of role modeling or it creates, I think what's ca- called in psychology, plausibility structures, right? This idea that um, I can actually do this because I see that somebody else is doing it. And I think about Judaism in that regard when a kid who is, let's say, super creative, super you know charismatic but creative and not a rule follower etc looks around at the jewish leaders in their life and sees for example their synagogue's rabbi who is a relatively observant person who is talking about the right way to be Jewish even if that rabbi is kind of open minded there's still this kind of structured way and that person says you know I'm I'm really creative and that person ends up going to art school or becomes a filmmaker or becomes whatever an advertising executive an architect you know whatever but doesn't really go to become a Jewish leader whether that means going to rabbinical school or otherwise becoming a Jewish leader in part because they don't see they don't see that as a as as a respected form of being a Jewish leader. So like I'm wondering number one, is like what's the example, what's the version of 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 having Hillary Clinton nominated here in this regard? Is it how to elevate the voice of these kinds of Jewish leaders who whose leadership is actually more in the realm of creativity and expansiveness rather than other forms of leadership as as important as those other forms of leadership might be. If we are saying that we are living at a time in Judaism and in a place in Judaism where what we really need is an incredible amount of creativity, of play, of rethinking, you know, then we have to think very carefully about what those of us who may be in a position to put stuff out there into the Jewish world, what should we be putting out there that would make it more likely that people would engage in that kind of creativity as opposed to, I think, what often is happening, which is that the creative people either are voting by exit, and they're not really engaging very much in Jewish life at all, or they're checking their creativity in the, at the door. And when they engage in Jewish life, it's as a participant, as opposed to bringing their their creative self to the Jewish endeavor, they're saying, yeah, I'm, a, um, I'm an artist in my in my day job, but when I'm at synagogue on Shabbat, I, I pray and I just do what's, what I'm expected to do. You know, how, how so I don't know. It's, a, you know, I, I know this isn't like a super well-formed question, but it's something that I'm so struggling with is to think about how are we going to really cut through this
1: Gordian knot? I think the answer, and this is going to sound ludicrously cliche and like self-congratulatory to us, is like to unbound Judaism. Like, like I, I think that really... We have to come back to that almost. It's not a mission statement, but it is an implication of what our Jewish world could and should look like through the title of our show, which is that we, we both, for purposes of experimentation and finding creative solutions, and because it's just good, need to think about Judaism as, as Pushing past a lot of what we've thought of as the limits, Um, opening itself up to new everything from new Jewish objects to new Jewish rituals, to new Jewish people, to um, all of it. And I think that's that we're still very early in the process of transitioning to that mind frame. But. Once we're there, that'll be a good sign. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a good
0: opportunity to just do a little bit of a look back at where we've come up till now in the show. I I don't mean to put it all together into some neat bow. I don't feel capable of doing that, certainly not at this stage, and I don't think it's necessary for us to do that. I, I, I guess I do want to share some of the major themes that have been dominant in my thinking as I look back. And as I've been talking to people over the last six months about our show and our perspective, and some folks have asked me, are we going to start to get prescriptive? And I don't really think that we are. I I, I think that we really want to put ideas out there and, and trust people to make the connections on their own. But every once in a while, we we try to make a few connections. So... I think for me, looking back to what this has all been about for me up till now, it's really been the recognition that one of the most exciting ideas that I feel came out for me in our initial set of conversations was this idea of looking at people who are not participating in organized Jewish life as dissenters, as opposed to looking at them as non-interested people, you know, that that whether they actively see themselves as dissenting or not, that they're actually voting by exit. But then when in, they tell the Pew study that being Jewish is important to them, they're demonstrating that they're not against Judaism, they're against the way that Judaism is being presented in the various institutions that have been dominant. And then you ask yourself, okay, well, what do you do with dissenters? You know, and usually dissenters get organized into dissenting camps dissenting movements it's 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 not too common that once dissenters have left that an organization is able to rejigger itself in order to attract them back in so i i feel like those two ideas right one that we should look at non affiliated people as dissenters and two that we should not expect too much of existing organizations as being able to figure out a way to connect with them, that ultimately what that means is that we should be focusing on a muscular approach to empowering those dissenters to create for themselves and to start thinking about what all that's going to look like. And I think the other revelation that we've had in thinking about some of the things like America and intermarriage is that it turns out that those Jewish dissenters are joined by a lot of non-Jews who either are their spouses or their friends or people who actually may not even be thinking of themselves actively as interested in Judaism. But they're so much like their Jewish friends that are, you know, what I'm calling dissenters, that if those Jewish friends came up with something that would get them excited, it would probably get a lot of other non-Jews excited as well. And so there's there's mm-hmm. also a, a strong possibility that whatever is invented out there among the folks who are not participating in organized Jewish life today, that there actually may be a whole world of fellow travelers who who might end up being interested in that, some of whom might convert to Judaism, some of whom might not. And that should be part of the world that we're looking at, the world that we're looking to empower. You know, that, that to me is is a lot of where we are, you know, in terms of looking at the landscape of, of, of what needs to be done. And, you know, and then and then bringing in those, that metaphor of whether that constitutes a new Jewish operating system or a new way of thinking about Judaism altogether, that it's not an operating system, but an app or a folder of apps. I mean, those are metaphors that we, we explore to see, to try to give ourselves a sense of organizing this thing that is hard to imagine because it doesn't yet exist.
1: Right. And so it's it's just in in having this episode and in looking back, we we've mentioned so many of our amazing guests, and it's just I I'm looking actually at, at all the guests that we've had, and the learning that I've been able to do, and you just spoke about it too, Dan. Like the way we've been able to grow in our thinking through all of our 25 previous episodes. Is just so great. I just think that that we do need, as you said before, we've found a role for discussion about Judaism. And I just I hope that folks out there, when when you see this podcast and and all the fancy guests that we've found that are just so incredible and and really scholarly in their in their own right, I hope the takeaway isn't wow, it's great that I get to learn from these incredible experts and tune into the show. That's, I mean, I shouldn't say I hope that's not the takeaway. I hope that's one takeaway. But really, what I think would be the best result of this show is that if people see the various guests that we've had as, like you said before, plausibility structures, there's no reason that if you want to be somebody who is experimenting with new forms of Judaism like so many of our guests are please do that the the like that would be the best possible result both for us to feel good about what we're producing with this show and also just for Judaism in the world you can do this and and it's not necessarily that you can go and start a Jewish organization and get funding and like you can even on a small level, just create new forms of Judaism with whatever plastic frogs and margarita mix are lying around.
0: Yeah, and and at the very least, you can think this way. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. We are putting out the those plausibility structures that I was talking about earlier. But yeah, that's another interesting sort of serendipitous, accidental thing that that maybe is coming out of our just starting to try to meet our own need for a conversation and for blowing open our own thinking and uh, I'm excited about the idea that that we are maybe putting out plausibility structures plausibility role models for, for folks and um, so I, I think that in looking forward to our next six months and certainly to our next six weeks or so we are going to be looking a little bit at the subject of art and artists as a way into thinking about the creation process. Art is fundamentally in part about creation of something new. And uh, the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to be looking forward, looking back, in a sense, to the original Jewish piece of art, which is the Bible, in the sense that we started the podcast with the Bible, and we're starting our second six months with the Bible. I think it's kind of an interesting full circle or half circle, I guess, (laughs) that, um, that we do think that there's some value in understanding that what we're talking about is not something really new. It's talking about going back to that old thing that is really just a, notion of how you start and how you start over, you know, B'nai Lapi helped us understand the rabbis of the Talmud as starting over, and maybe we're starting over again, but but it's all based on everything that's come before, both thematically, both in terms of the process and in, and in terms of being able to build on the content. So I'm excited to have Richard Elliott Friedman, the author of Who Wrote the Bible, on next week to kind of get us started thinking about the Bible as that ultimate Jewish work of art. Then we're going to look at a book that we've been involved in getting translated into English called The Secret Book of Kings, which gives the Bible a different kind of a look. And then we're going to jump into really talking to a number of artists or Jewish leaders that are thinking like artists. And we're really excited about this idea of trying to get deeper into the question of, you know, who is going to be the people that are going to help get us on this track to reimagining Judaism and Jewish experiences and Jewish life. And what is the mindset that they use? And then looking for, further down the road, we have some amazing guests who are, let's say, people who don't come from what's typically thought of as traditional Jewish backgrounds and identities. We really are uh, are just getting started.
1: Absolutely. And we want to close out this 26th episode, uh, our look back and our look forward six months into our podcast first by thanking you for being interested and and giving this crazy new podcast a chance it it means a lot to us that we've reached as many people as we have and and that the folks that we are reaching are are in touch with us and and letting us know what you're gaining from it so really it it's been a great pleasure even though we might not hear your voices with each one of these episodes I do feel and I think I speak for both Dan and I that we have a real connection with folks who are listening so thank you and the other piece is that as always we want to encourage you as a result of that by the way to be in touch with us so please we've got our Facebook page Judaism Unbound we've got our website JudaismUnbound.com and we've also got our email addresses, dan at nextjewishfuture.org and lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And of course, if you are able to support us with some amount of monthly donation through our Patreon account, we welcome that and deeply appreciate it. And you can do so at www.patreon.com/ Judaism Unbound. This has been the first six months of Judaism Unbound.